Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's sometime in the 1950s, and Mel Brooks is in a Chicago hotel room. He's working late into the night with his boss at the time, the television star Sid Caesar. As Mel tells it, Sid's been drinking vodka and smoking cigars for hours while they do punch-up on their script. Then Mel makes a mistake. He says he needs to get some air. There was a window there, you know, in this hotel. Probably was shut for 30 years. He just yanked it open, you know, easily. One grabbed the two handles. It was wide open. Cold air came rushing through. He grabbed me by the collar and by the seat of my pants and hung me out the window. I could see Michigan Avenue. I looked down. There were yellow cabs. I was. I said, this, so this is how it ends. I just, I thought, and then he said, he got enough air? Yeah, I, oh, yeah, sure. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm ready to work. It's bullseye. up, I talked to Mel Brooks about his unparalleled career, and we talk about some of his collaborators. He wrote for Sid Caesar on television in the 1950s and worked with Gene Wilder on Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein in the 1970s. But one of Brooks' biggest comedic inspirations was a man he never met, one Adolf Hitler. My modus operandi was to bring Hitler down with his funny salute, his little mustache, and I did a very good job at it. And find out why Brooks gets away with the stupidest of puns. I can probably count hundreds just in History of the World Part 1, and that's one of my favorite movies ever. They're meant to be bad jokes. You know that. They're meant to be. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not caught unaware. Later on, you'll hear my conversation with singer-songwriter Amy Mann. Find out why she rejected the career path of a typical pop star and why it all kind of worked out anyway. Plus, gospel singer Shirley Caesar talks about the song that changed her life. L.A. Times book critic Carolyn Kellogg shares a couple of books you should be reading right now, and I'll talk about a record written by a brilliant man isolated from the world. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Who's Mel Brooks? I'll tell you. Mel Brooks is funny. He's the personification of funny. He spent 60 years <laughs> making us laugh. Your show of shows, Get Smart, The Producers, Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs. I think that between the time my parents got VCRs when I was about seven and when I turned 15, I watched History of the World Part One a hundred times, probably more. Mm. Last year, Shout Factory put out a box set looking back at Brooks' career, from rare audio recordings to little-seen TV pilots. This year, he's the subject of an American Masters documentary on PBS. It's an honor to have him on Bullseye. Mel Brooks, welcome to the show. C'est un grand plaisir. C'est merveilleux, heureux. Je suis très heureux de vous voir. Wait a minute. You're, this ain't French. No, not at all. We're not, not in, in the slightest. This is not a, an interview. You're not from Paris. Where are you from? San Francisco. So what am I doing this French? Okay, forget it. Forget what I said. Let's talk about your hometown. You're from Brooklyn, from Williamsburg. I'm from Williamsburg. You know, we used to pay $18 a month in rent to Williamsburg. I think you couldn't get an apartment for 3800 a month there now. It's, it's become hip. It's become chic. It's become au courant. I don't know. Williamsburg has become very modern. 
Your your father died when you were very young, and you had uh, three older brothers. Right? Yeah, I was interviewed about that, and I think it was you. Da- you Downs was interviewing me. You Downs said, "So, uh, so you lost your father when he was only when he was only thirty four years old." And I said, "No." He said, "Well, what do you mean, no? We have your father died when you were two, and he was thirty four. I said, "That's true. He died, but we didn't lose him." <laughs> he, was, he was in the bedroom. He was dead, but no, nobody lost. You don't. You don't lose people. You you still regard them somehow. So any, anyway, I had I, I had a lot of fun with him. He he didn't quite get me, you know. But you know, I, I had to go easy. Was there a point when you realized that your family was in a precarious? Like, was there a point where you saw the outside world, like as a thirteen-year-old or something? Yeah, like that? yeah. Not till I was a teenager did I realize that, oh, my God, we're poor, you know. <laughs> Better do something about that. How did that happen? I, I don't know. I think uh, what, what I, you know, we had moved to Brighton Beach because my mother, and my mother took in a border. And uh, so she, things were easier. We, we, I think my grandmother moved there for some reason, so my mother followed her, and we had two years at Brighton Beach. And when I was in Brighton Beach, there were there were uh, rich people and poor people, and uh, I, I saw some you know some of the kids at Abraham Lincoln High School. I was a drummer in the band, and uh, some of the kids had really fancy apartments in uh, on in Brighton Beach near the ocean. And, uh, you know, three or four bedrooms and an incredible difference. And I realized we were, we, we just, we still had two bedrooms, one for my mother and one for the, all the boys. Of course, but what, what got better in Brighton Beach is that we all, we didn't all sleep in the same bed. And it wasn't the king, there was no king size beds. It was just a full, uh, and uh, I didn't mind it. I was crushed between Irving and Bernie, and, you know, I loved it. I loved my brothers. And, and in, the, in the winter, it was warm. So, But I realized we are not well-to-do. When you were a teenager, was were you aware of Hitler? Like, was that something that was did – did you have family, any family still in Europe? Or? There were intimations. I mean, I just we, – we heard about this guy, Hitler. I didn't know I was going to make a living out of it, but you know, I had no idea. But anyway, uh, you were going to become Hitler's yeah, foremost yeah, chronicler right, in song yeah. and dance. Uh, well, you know, when I finally did do stuff about Hitler, and I got letters from rabbis and you know Jewish organizations all over America, and not not good letters. And I try <laughs> I try to explain that if you got on a soapbox with these. Um, brilliant orators, these dictators, you didn't have a chance because they had they had power and they had magnetism in their speech. But if you could ridicule them, you were a step ahead. And and you could if you could bring them down with laughter, then 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 you were doing your job. And that's what that was my my modus operandi was to bring Hitler down with his funny salute, his little mustache and and uh, I did a very good job at it. How old were you when you went into the service? Actually, I went into the service at 17. You say, how? You're supposed to be 18. The Army Specialized Training Reserve, very important word, program. You could join at 17 if you passed the test. And I did. 
Uh, were your were your your older brothers? Have they? Been? They were already in the, in the army, and I think my mother could have gotten me out by simply saying, "I've got three boys in the service, and you know, and I don't want my baby." And you know, and they would. I think they would have given me a pass on. But I, you know, I I just wanted the excitement of being being in the army, being a soldier. I studied electrical engineering at Virginia Military Institute. Little boy, Jewish boy from Brooklyn, sent down to Virginia, to VMI, Lexington, Virginia, the West Point to the South. Very prestigious, but uh, but they were very sweet, very kind, and you know, and I loved fried chicken. And I, the first time I tasted Dr Pepper, and the first time I was allowed to have cheeseburgers, because there was uh, you didn't have it very often in Brooklyn. I don't think they were famous. <laughs> And uh, I just liked it. The only thing that was tough was you had to take care of your horse. They, they taught you how to ride a horse. And they, you know, you rode for a little while. They gave you a saber. You cut down bamboo poles with little flags on them. I, I was like, this is silly. You just pull out a gun and kill anything in your way. Why, why were you? you know, what, what is, I didn't get it. You know, anyway. You're describing it as wonderful, but it's also, you know, a prelude to going to war. And that must have been really scary. Well, you know, I always thought it was like I was in a newsreel. It never really, there was nothing real about it, you know? I thought, it's kind of like show business, you know? They give you a uniform, and I I was, I got a little medal. But then then someone tries to kill you. Yeah, yeah, that was difficult. Yeah, and then, then you know, I think it occurred to me when finally uh, I was in Normandy, not in the invasion, I was lucky, a year, if my mother had given birth to me a year earlier, I would have been, we wouldn't have had this conversation. Because I missed D-Day and I missed the battle, you know, of the bulge at, at Bastogne. And I got there a couple of months after that. I only had three or four months of combat. I know that I was a radio operator at the beginning before I was in the combat engineers. I was in the field artillery. And I was a radio operator and I would be giving positions. I would start with Wilco Fox. George, Howe, Roger, and I'd say, Howie, there's a church. You see the church at the top of the hill? You see the yellow house? The Germans are in that yellow house near the church. Just shoot over there, you know. Instead of all this Wilco, Howe, Fox, map coordinates, you know, for, for artillery. But, you know, but when we finished broadcasting, the Germans were sensational at at cross-finding where we were broadcasting from, and just a minute or so later, uh, there would be there'd, there'd be a straddle of 88 shells exploding across the road that we were just on a minute ago. So it, it was very, you know, I could have, I, you know, it, it, it was dangerous. The whole war was dangerous. There were some spots in the war that were fun, believe it or not. I was We were across a river or a creek from some Germans, and I heard, yeah, yeah, I put it in the Blazing Saddles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I picked up a megaphone and I sang Tootsie Goodbye. Don't cry, Tootie, don't cry. And then at the end of the song, I thought I heard this. I heard a little more. They liked it, you know. So there were spots like that during, during, the, uh, during the war. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm talking with Mel Brooks. In the 1950s, Brooks wrote for Sid Caesar on the variety television show, Your Show of Shows. Here's a clip. Caesar and Imogen Coca are dining at a health food restaurant. The waiter is played by Carl Reiner. 
Well, well, I don't know. What would you suggest I have? Well, how about a nice penicillin pudding? Penicillin pudding? <laughs> With a hypodermic or you take it nasally? What do you do? Darling, why don't you have a steak? Steak? Sure, where? Where's the steak? Right there. Steak-o! Uh, by Tony steak made of broccoli germ, <laughs> asparagus gluten, carrot dextrose, and celery. <laughs> and with that, you get two vegetables. Oh, I need them very much. <laughs> Hey, what is he eating? I'll, I'll have that, that, uh, that spaghetti. I'll have that, yeah. That's not spaghetti, sir. That's spaghetti. Cabbage extract and cauliflower derivative. It looks like spaghetti, so we call it spaghetti. <laughs> well, I'll have a veal kitlet with some ravioli on the side. Sid Caesar is an, an absolutely amazing... Yeah, well, for me, it, for me, it was it was the guy's a seminal aspect of my career in show business. He, uh, I would have been a, a stand-up comic, or I would have been a performer much earlier, and may have been over with. You know, my media may have burned out, but uh, it was good enough. It was fine just writing for Sid Caesar because he was a great vehicle for my my comedy, my passion, and and I was very happy. Just to see him nail it. Couldn't get a better guy to write for. He's a huge man and has the physique of like a, um, you know, a, 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 a boxer or a bodybuilder before people really knew yeah. how to use weights. Yeah, like right. just a huge man. Yeah, he had big shoulders. He had a small waist, washboard abs, big muscles. I mean, he, he could be the Hulk. And, uh, you know, one time we were in Chicago and I was writing some new jokes for for a monologue for him. And I, at the end of every show, he would put down a lot of vodka. It was a, a lot of tension, you know, and he was relaxing. And we were up in, in his suite, and I'm trying to write. And he was smoking cigars then, and, and the place was full of cigar smoke. And I, it was 2 in the morning. I couldn't breathe. And I said, Sid, i got to go out. I just have to go out. I have to get some air. I can't. I can't do it. And he was kind of drunk. And he said, air? You want air? I'll give you air. There was a window there, you know, in this hotel. Probably was shut for 30 years. He just yanked it open, you know, easily. One grabbed the two handles. It was wide open. And uh, air, cold air came rushing through. He grabbed me by the collar and by the seat of my pants, and hung me out the window. I could see Michigan Avenue. I looked down. There were yellow cabs. I was. I said, "This." So this is how it ends. I just. I thought. And then he said, "He got enough air." Yeah. I go, oh yeah. Sure. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm ready to work. Right. So he took me back. You know. And and he was really strong. Thank God he was that strong. He never. He never dropped me. He had a good good grip on me. I'll talk more with Mel Brooks after a break. He'll tell me what he thought he could get away with as a filmmaker, like a musical about Hitler. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, this is Dave Hill from Dave Hill's Podcasting Incident on the Maximum Fun Network. I'm here with my lovely and talented secretary, Ms. Shana Feinberg. Shana, I understand you've been doing a bit of research to find out what listeners think of the show. Yes, I have, Dave. And what have you found? Well, 
People that love it say they love it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Awesome. What, what do people that hate it say? They hate it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Oh. Listen to Dave Hill's podcast dancing on the Maximum Fun Network, motherfucker. Was that too much? No, I think it was perfect. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm talking with Mel Brooks about his life and his career. In the 1950s, Brooks wrote comedy for Sid Caesar on your show of shows. As the 1960s began, Brooks stopped working for Caesar and eventually started a new show, the spy parody Get Smart. Around this time, Brooks was developing the idea for what would become his first film, a musical comedy called The Producers. There was a period in between for you, wasn't there? Wasn't there a period in between before you made The Producers that you, you were Well, yeah, I was out of was work. How long were you out of work for? I think we went off the air in 59. And uh, so in 1960, I was completely out of work. And uh, You were married. You had... I, well, I was... I was, I was I, I, somewhere in the middle of 60 when I didn't have a... We were separated. My, my first wife wasn't her fault. I was, I was having an... I, frankly, I was having a nervous breakdown and I, I wasn't... I really wasn't good company. Where was it coming from? Just from, not- I guess it was coming from frustration and not after being one of the top comedy writers in America. Suddenly, just no show, no no employment, no nothing. You know, and so uh, what I really wanted to do was this thing. I was writing a book called Springtime for Hitler. You know about about uh, I think it was the. It was the book of a of a show. I I knew it would be a show. Maybe I don't think it was a musical yet. It was a, I think it was a play. <clears throat> oh yeah, I started as a book. It was to talk too much. There was just too much dialogue. So I said, well, it's, it's a play. Then I brought it to Kermit Bloomgarden, who did Death of a Salesman. He's a wonderful producer, friend of mine, and he said, too many scenes. Cut it down to three or four scenes, and I and I said I can't. It just goes everywhere. He said, then maybe it's a movie. You go everywhere anymore. I said, okay. So I began writing it as a movie, and that was in 63, and uh, and still grabbing little jobs here and there. And then, I, but, but I was depressed. I was out of work. Now, I'm surprised to hear that people were telling you, oh, this has too many scenes. Oh, this is too talky. Not, oh, this is about some guys who are putting on a musical about Hitler. <laughs> Yeah, well... Because that seems like what they would open with. Well, you know, uh, they didn't mention that, but I'm sure that was in the back of their minds. We're not going to do this. This guy's crazy. We're not going to do it. Did we're, you we're, think we're that you were do crazy a, We're not going to do a movie that? about Hitler. Is he nuts? Is the war is just over, you know. Were you aware that that was crazy? Because no. it was crazy. No, I wasn't aware. I thought it was fine, you know. I thought it was funny. Did but, you run it by anybody? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, I ran it by a lot of different people <laughs> who, who just said, you know, we'll let you know, or, you know, we'll, don't call us, we'll call you. And finally, there was a guy called Sidney Glazier, G-L-A-Z-I-E-R. And he, uh, his name is on the poster. And he said, I love it. You know, actually, he was eating a tuna fish sandwich with coffee. He said, tell me the story. And in the middle of springtime for Hitler, he spit, every, he spit out the sandwich and the coffee, and he fell on the floor. He said, we've got to make this movie. Germany was having trouble. What a 
sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? We looked around and then we found the man for you. Anyway, I still needed money, and uh, I got a call from uh, David Susskind and Danny Melnick. They had a company called Talent Associates, and uh, they offered me the lead and the leading to create and be the lead in a in a television show spoofing I Spy, you know, with with uh, Cosby and and and. Uh, or, James Bond, and you're spoofing the CIA. And I said, I'll do it, but I don't want to be in it. I wasn't ready. I said, uh, I need somebody, and they got me Buck Henry, and I met with Buck Henry and fell in love with him. We we got it done. It was great. Hamptown ladies sing this song. Do-da, do-da, Hamptown racetrack, five miles long. Oh, da do-da day. Gonna run all night, gonna run all day. I bet my money in a bobtail nag, somebody bet... On the bay. Is that you, 24? Yes, 86. Are you sure you weren't followed? Absolutely sure. So, anyway, Get Smart was going, so there was an income, and I was able to get enough money to make, uh, to make the producers, which was not successful, wasn't unsuccessful, it just meandered, kind of meandered along. It was kind of considered a, a crazy art picture, and not not. It didn't have any stars. It had Zero Mostel and this unknown guy, Gene Wilder. In fact, I'm going to play your Oscar acceptance speech from oh. the script for the producers. Yeah, it was the I, original I, screenplay. It was amazing. Yeah, I I only wish that I could play the extended back and forth between Don Rickles and Frank Sinatra that precedes it, mm-hmm. um, but it would be a little bit too long. Uh, I didn't trust myself in case I won, so I wrote a couple of things here. I want to thank the Academy of Arts, Sciences, and Money for this wonderful (laughs) award. Uh, Well, I'll just say what's in my heart. Ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. But seriously, I'd like to thank... Sidney Glazer, the producer of The Producers, for producing The Producers. <laughs> Joseph e. Levine and his wife, Rosalie, for distributing the film. <laughs> I'd also like to thank Zero Mostel. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. Thank you very much. I think that the Gene Wilder is sort of the magic ingredient of the producers in that as you go through <laughs> this scheme, which is obviously the most horrible thing anyone could ever do, pretty yes. much, the thing that brings you through that, I mean, Zero Mostel is also wonderful. In the oh, film. yeah, he's fabulous. But, but Gene brings it to life. He, because he, he gives it life. 
because he is, you know, he can do any of these things and you still just believe in him because he is so sweet. Yeah. He just, his, his kindness and, you know, just decent personhood shines through so brightly, even Good as he you. is That's working exactly on this. exactly how I, I felt about him. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm talking with Mel Brooks. He's the man behind films like Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs, and History of the World Part One, a movie that includes some of my favorite terrible, terrible jokes ever. I heard that one of the things that uh, Gene Wilder got you to agree to um, when he agreed to come be in Blazing Saddles was to help him make Young Frankenstein and that one of the rules as the two of you were working on Young Frankenstein was that you weren't allowed to be in it. Yeah, right. He didn't want me to to be in a in a suit of armor and lift the visor <laughs> and say, hiya, folks. Yeah. He didn't want that. So, I want to ask you a question about your uh, comedic madcap insanity. I, I mentioned in the beginning, in the introduction, that uh, History of the World is one of my favorite films and is a movie that I watched over and over and over and over as a kid. And History of the World is mostly sort of a sketch movie. And um, it it would be hard to have a movie with more jokes than History of the World has. I mean, it's it's wall-to-wall jokes. And some of the jokes are genuinely horrible. There's a joke. (laughs) There's a part where someone says, the the one that's sticking out of my mind is someone says, the streets are crawling with Trojans. And you cut to... Soldiers crawling on the street. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is the worst joke. I it is. It's, a, it's probably you have good. <laughs> I would say, Jesse. I say you have you have good taste because that is probably the worst joke. You know, literal jokes are the worst jokes. <laughs> Don't be saucy with me, Bernays. They're meant to be bad jokes. You know that. They're meant to be. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not caught unawares. I mean, you know, some of my jokes have been so dumb and so silly and so – but they're, they're meant to do that. There's something about the shamelessness of it and the sort of, I guess, the shamelessness and gleefulness of it that you really seem to love a joke. Yeah. It's a bad kid giving his uncle a hot foot. You know, it's – it's bad. You know, it's, I, like, I like to do, obviously, in silent movie, I do some of the worst jokes I've ever done in my life. And I'm the only one laughing, but I'm on the floor. I'm, I'm, you know, I love it. So I've got you know, to please myself. Even though I offend hordes of people, it's still, I've, I've just got to please myself from time to time. <laughs> Well, Mel Brooks, we've, we've used more than our allotment of time. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. Well, it's my pleasure. This has been, this has been easy. The only thing that really rankles me and makes me upset about this interview is that there's no money in it whatsoever. You don't pay, <laughs> you don't, you, uh, you don't pay a penny. The one and only Mel Brooks. The American Masters documentary Mel Brooks Make a Noise was released earlier this year and is available now on DVD. You can also survey his career for yourself with his recent box set, The Incredible Mel Brooks, an irresistible collection of unhinged comedy.
Every week on Bullseye, we get some pop culture recommendations from our critics. This week, we're not doing new stuff. We're doing all-timers with Carolyn Kellogg from the L.A. Times. Hey, Carolyn. Hi, Jesse. Um, so let's start, since you are from the L.A. Times, and we are in Los Angeles, where this program is headquartered with a great L.A. book, Raymond Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely. First of all, for folks who haven't read a lot of hard-boiled fiction. Tell me a little bit about the book. Raymond Chandler's um, Farewell, My Lovely is one of his classics that got made into a film. But one of the beautiful things about Raymond Chandler is his language. In Farewell, My Lovely, Raymond Chandler is kind of at his best at distilling these hard-boiled metaphors. Can I pull out a piece of paper? Yeah, sure. I needed a drink. I needed a lot of life insurance. I needed a vacation. I needed a home in the country. What I had was a coat, a hat, and a gun. I put them on and went out of the room. (laughs) It's just so hard-boiled. And then this is the best one ever. It was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained-glass window. (laughs) Do you think there's something particularly Los Angeles-y about the book? I mean, why is this noir novel set in a place that's famous for being bright and beautiful. I think that's one of the beautiful things about noir is that it took Los Angeles's uh, shiny side and showed the darkness. Raymond Chandler writes with with such a broken-hearted bitterness that you can only feel that betrayed by a place if you once loved it. And that light and dark together, I think, is at the heart of noir, particularly Raymond Chandler's books. Now, let's go from some high, low culture to some straight-up high culture in Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49. I have never read The Crying of Lot 49. Uh, Perhaps you could begin by telling me what the deal is with it. Um, It's one of Thomas Pynchon's shortest books, and Pynchon is a very dense and brilliant writer. So a short book is a great place to start if you haven't read Gravity's Rainbow. And it is set in Southern California in the end of the 60s. And it is about a vast conspiracy that may or may not exist that a woman named Oedipa Moss turns up when she's named the executor of an ex-boyfriend's estate. It seems like one of the appealing things about Pynchon is is a sort of aesthetic experience. What do you mean by that? Well, you talk about his super dense language. I mean, people just get super into that. <laughs> well, this book is is like full of stupid puns. I mean, like Oedipa Moss's uh, husband is a radio guy and he goes by Mucho Moss. <laughs> That's like his on-air name. So this is this is like Pynchon being really goofy, but at the same time, some of those insidious ideas about there being a vast network that may or may not make sense around you are right there, right underneath the surface. Do you feel like there's a vast network surrounding you that may or may not make sense? I feel like I'm tied into all these wires right now. (laughs) Carolyn Kellogg writes about books for the LA Times. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Shirley Caesar has been singing gospel music for over six decades. She's won 11 Grammys. Her performances still have her crisscrossing the country. But she makes the trip back to North Carolina in time for church every Sunday. Pastor Caesar's newest album of gospel music is called Good God.
As a teenager, there was one particular song that inspired her. I think I was 14, 13, something like that, uh, when I first heard the song, The Lord Will Make a Way Somehow. Thomas A. Dorsey's version, uh, written by James Fortune. I was not a recording artist at the time that I heard uh, the song. I've never recorded it. It was just one of the songs that whenever I would go out to churches and sing, the Lord will make a way somehow would be one of the songs. I'm one of 12 children. Years ago, as a child growing up, with my mom being a semi-invalid, my father had already passed. My mother did the best she could uh, to raise us, to send us to school, to give us what she gave us. And it was that song that lifted my spirit, lifted my mom's. It was through this song that I was able to see uh, us coming out of our situation. Dorsey's version of the song is sung here by Marion Williams. Like a ship that's tossed and driven Stones of life are raging, and the fury falls on me. Lord, I wonder many times what I've done. To my soul, be patient. The Lord will make a way somehow. Oftentimes, but it was a few years before Shirley Caesar's life was truly changed by the song. I was in college and, uh, we, uh, we were out for the summer. I had no more money to go back to school. Around that time, she went to see Albertino Walker and the Caravans perform. First in Raleigh, then in Kenton. Because they needed a singer. One of the singers had gone home for, for a funeral or something. So I felt that if Albertino Walker heard me, that I would get a chance to sing with her for a while and then later on go back to college. You know, make some money, then go back to college. And I told Dorothy Love Coates of the original gospel harmonettes, they were on the program too. I said, tell that lady I can sing that missing part. And sure enough, the Lord made it away. And uh, when they did call on me to sing, that was a song that I used. And while I was singing, I looked around and all of the singers had come out from the back to hear this little girl sing where they could hear me. And Albertina said, I got to have that little girl. So I sold my biology book, 
and I caught a bus, met them uh, in Washington, D.C., and the rest is history. But it all started from the Lord will make a way somehow. Thomas A. Doris's song. And you know, now that we're talking about this song so much, I just might record it. I, I just might. All I've got to do is let him have my burdens. Let him have them right now. Shirley Caesar on the song that changed her life. Tommy Dorsey's version of The Lord Will Make a Way Somehow, sung by Marion Williams. After a break, hear my conversation with Amy Mann. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Cameron Esposito, the host of Wham Bam Pow. This is an action and sci-fi movie podcast on MaximumFun.org. We talk about punching. We talk about car chases. We talk about uh, arms, muscles that are on arms. And every week I'm joined by panelists Rhea Butcher. That's me. And, of course, also... Ricky Carmona. Oh, I'm all up in it. That's what's up. The Afro spokesman. We are going to give you all of the jokes and all of the happiness and all of the information that you need to watch action sci-fi films to the fullest. Mm. Find it at MaximumFun.org or you can subscribe on iTunes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Amy Mann rose to fame fronting the new wave group Till Tuesday. She had on lace gloves with frilly cuffs in the heart-rending video for their hit song, 1985's Voices Carry. Since Mann went solo 20 years ago, she's in many ways become the archetypal indie singer-songwriter. She now has eight acclaimed records under her own name, and her music for the film Magnolia made her an Oscar nominee in 1999. Mann's latest album, Charmer, is in large part about likable people twisting and tearing relationships. Here's the title song. When you're a charmer The apples fall spoke about a year ago. It wasn't long after her album Charmer was released. Amy Mann, thanks so much for uh, being on Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. So um, I had never seen uh, the video for um, the Till Tuesday song that we heard in the introduction, which was your first big hit. Yeah. And um, 
It is it, it is a extremely new wave aesthetically. Yes. Um, <laughs> what, and the, the video itself or the song? The video yeah. itself. I mean, it could. I mean, this the song is to a great extent as well. But the video in particular, I mean, the aforementioned, you know, lace gloves with cuffs. With I love how the, the and... detail you're you're really paying attention to the detail because I don't remember this at all. I just remember <laughs> like long gloves, you know, like eh, give her some gloves that look like uh, somebody would wear it at, at an opera. And and, um, you know, you you look frankly spectacular. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But I, I wonder if that was something that was part of your identity or whether it was just the aesthetic that was going on. And you thought of yourself as a, you know, popular singer, you know, a singer of pop music um, without the I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't include the sort of insulting part of that. But, you know, like a popular music singer and uh, and the new wave was just the thing that was happening. Yeah, I mean, it probably was like, honestly, it probably I, I, I it probably was just that it was the thing that was happening. And I kind of got got into uh you know, I mean, I was like 24, so um, my bent is more towards, you know, harmony and melody. I mean, I do. That's, you know, that's where I live. It's not so much the stylistic thing. So, yeah, I, that was the, the new wave thing was the just really what was happening. I'm I'm sure if I had grown up in the country rock era, I would be busting out the country rock instead. What What is it like to be uh, 24 years old? and have a big hit record? I, it did not suit me very well, I have to say. I mean, I think also, I was probably like a very young 24 in that, you know, I sort of look at people like Taylor Swift or Katy Perry who are, I mean, they're in their early 20s still, right? And, and, uh, and I'm like, not in a million years could I handle that. Anything, anything about that situation you know talking on talk shows and and playing giant show you know arena shows and awards shows and and red carpets like I'm not in a million years could I I mean that's like a whole it's like 80 different skill sets that I I like it are totally beyond me uh you know we we came till Tuesday's you know big hit voices carry was kind of right in the beginning of of MTV and you know that was such a novelty that um you know people we became really recognizable very very quickly and you know people following me back to my $400 a month apartment you know in the middle of the day was just i mean i just found it threatening and creepy you know i it's it's hard to it's hard to feel i think unless you're a giant narcissist it's hard to like really enjoy that it just seems like I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to say to people. Um, you know, if people say like, I love you, you're so great. You're like, thank you. I And the, I don't have anything to say past thank you. Um, and and also, I don't know, it was very strange because we were very recognizable, but we had no money, zero money. We were living on $150 a week. And we were opening for the, this tour for Hall & Oates, who were huge at the time. They were playing arenas. We were driving around in a van and sleeping two to a room in Motel 6. And it was, you know, like a just this really weird, uh, disparate, uh, you know, on the one hand being regarded as kind of like a TV glamorous thing. And on the other hand, just being completely broke. 
And then, you know, for a second record, I started I started writing songs. I had been writing songs on the bass, which because we were doing this kind of, you know, like semi dance pop stuff. And, uh, and then I started writing songs on acoustic guitar. And I immediately just felt like this is so much more my thing. Um, it's just it feels smaller. It feels more intimate. It's more about the song. It's less about, you know, this kind of spectacle or sound or presentation. You ended up um, in this multi-directional major record label uh, disaster show um, with uh, uh, around the time of your, I I guess, the third Till Tuesday album, which was, um, you know, you had... Maybe you can. You're probably will do a better job of I than of describing this sort of ten car pileup of uh, record contracts and. Well, it's such a mess. It's hard to know how to nutshell it, and I don't. I don't want to really like super bore anyone with you know details of like my my contractual junk. Um, the third. Okay, so Till Tuesday had, had the first record was a big hit. The second record, I think, like did okay, but it but its sound was really different, and I, I don't think they knew what to do with it. And so the third record, um, by the time the third record came out, the keyboard player and the guitar player had both left to do other things, and um, a bunch of new people came into the label, and uh, and then they were like. Well, your contract is up for renewal, and we're not sure we're going to renew it. You know, I, I was like, well, if you you clearly like don't like what I'm doing, so why don't we just go our separate ways? And they said, uh, well, we'd release you from your contract, but we're afraid you're going to go to another label and have a have a hit. So, so they wouldn't release me from my contract for three years. And I think at that point they thought, oh, her career is definitely over, so we could we could get rid of her now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're hearing an excerpt of my talk with Amy Mann from earlier this year. To hear our full conversation, go to MaximumFun.org. I read um, somewhere you describing yourself being so distraught in this period of time that you couldn't even just enjoy music, generally speaking. Yeah. It, you know, I think it, it gets to, God, you know, like it's... It's great to think that you can not be affected by that. And I always think that I'm not going to be affected by other people's outside opinions. But, um, you know, when they're the only people listening to your stuff and commenting, you start to just feel like a loser. You know, like everything I do is just not good enough. You know, everything, every song that I've played is like, eh. So I so then I go. All right, I'm Anne. Like I accept it. I accept that I'm Anne. You have now convinced me. So everything I write now, I as I'm writing it, I go, "Hey, why well, finish it? Because nobody cares." You had a great song um, a couple records ago about turning 31, and a lot of this stuff was happening as you were in that sort of part of your life. Shelter and the black cocoon. 
funny because I didn't really like that really was when I was 31 that really was when all that all this stuff was happening and um you know like yeah I th- like I think that probably did pile it on you know I, I was writing that song out of just a, the memory of you know like when when you're a kid and you you think like oh when I'm in my 30s like my life's gonna be set you know I'm that's I'm gonna be grown up and you know things are gonna be up and running and it's there's not gonna be question marks so to kind of reach this age and go wow it's all question marks it's nothing but question marks I want to take a listen to a little bit of Save Me from uh, the Magnolia soundtrack, um, a, a song that was, uh, among other things, nominated, got you nominated for an Oscar. You look like a perfect fit A girl in need of a different to experience the fame and success that you had from uh, the songs that you uh, had on the Magnolia soundtrack and the album that you had out at that time than when you were in your early 20s, 15 years earlier? Well, you know, the, the, the success of Till Tuesday, I felt, was, it was like, um, you know, it was like a promise I couldn't keep. And and the the promise was that we're uh, a big commercial band, and I and I was like I just always felt like I could not deliver on this this promise, and uh, you know, performance wise, I mean, playing live, you know, and that was very difficult. I really I did not know how to make that happen. It was you know, singing was not easy. I don't you know, I don't think my voice is that great, and it was you know, I I certainly didn't think it was very good then, and. You know, so it was just all, I mean, I just always felt like I was coming short, you know, was not hitting, not hitting the mark. And, and with Magnolia, I felt like that was, you know, my my best work. I thought Save Me was one of, one of my best songs. So I, it really was, you know, more, I felt putting my best foot forward and, and, uh, you know, felt very, like a lot more solid about it. Let's hear another song from Charmer. This song is called Labrador. By my guest, Amy Mann. Daisy, you shouldn't do the things you do, but you're just so incapable of changing. You lie so well, I could never even tell what were facts in your artful rearranging.
So I guess the question uh, that occurred to me as I was listening to this song suite of songs about uh, about destructive narcissism uh, was, what are you doing here in Los Angeles, the home of destructive narcissism? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, a series of accidents. <laughs> Believe me, narcissism is all around us. It's everywhere. You know, although... It's the industry, it's like, uh, the, the, you know, the industry of this town is built on making things appear to be different than they are, which is kind of the soul of narcissism, right? You know, being more concerned about how things look than how things are. But at least in this industry, people are aware of how things are because they're seeing it, you know, on the set every day. Like, they're, they're not, you know, they're not really... F- Almost like the people in the industry are less fooled by the, the appearance than, than other people. Except for maybe actors. Actors are pretty crazy. <laughs> but you have to admit, not all of them. Amy Mann, her most recent album is called Charmer. Type her name into Google, and you'll find that she already has a couple of shows lined up for 2014. And don't worry, I spoke a lot more with Amy Mann. To hear our full conversation, go to MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on this show, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. Last year, the New York Post wrote that Sly Stone was living in a camper van in Los Angeles. At the time, he told the reporter, I just don't want to return to a fixed home. I must keep moving. If you're a casual Sly fan, you probably know about songs like Dance to the Music or Hot Fun in the Summertime. At a time when music was splintering into black and white, Sly was holding youth culture together through sheer force of will. Sly and the Family Stone's hit records were as joyous as any pop music that's ever been recorded. By the early 70s, though, that had started to curdle. Sly stopped showing up for gigs. He started using cocaine, then PCP. Most of the band quit, and by the time he started working on his album Fresh in 1973, he was recording mostly by himself. He compulsively retracked instrumentals, playing almost every instrument alone in the studio. You can feel it on the record. Fresh is lonely and muddy and beautiful. It's the record of a brilliant man alienated from the world. You can hear the man in the van through all the muck and the funk. The centerpiece is one of the greatest songs Sly ever recorded, If You Want Me to Stay. It's a love song, I guess. He wrote it as an apology after a fight with his wife. But it's a love song by a man who's resigned to being alienated from love by his own worst qualities. Or maybe his own best qualities. With Sly, it's hard to tell. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go, and then you'll know for me to stay I got to be me. You'll never be in doubt. That's what it's all about. You can't take me for granted and smile. Come on, please, I'm gone. Forget reaching me by phone. Because I promise I'll be gone for a while. Mm-hmm. 
Stone works so hard to bring the world together. Then he works so hard to drive himself away from it. There's a part of me that wants Sly back. There's a part of me that thinks that he's right where he's got to be. When you shape me again, I hope you have been the kind of person you really are now. I'll be so good. I wish I could get the message over to you That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, senior producer Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. If you have thoughts about Bullseye, you can always email me, jesse, at MaximumFun.org. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.